Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. Hello everyone, I'm Dorothy Koshu, host of the Benefits Executive Roundtable. To continue our two-part series on mental and behavioral health during Mental Health Awareness Month, I want to once again welcome Ruth Tello DeLiva, founder and president of Familias First, an applied behavioral analysis or ABA therapy services organization in LA County. Ruth is also the executive director for their sister company, CBC Education. Thank you, Ruth, for being with me today. Thank you, Dorothy. Pleasure to be here and thank you for having me. Well, last year, right in the middle of COVID, we recorded a podcast, and that was very informative and really inspirational, so I want to really thank you for that. And there you were with your staff and yourself, you know, in the trenches, trying to help kids with autism and other behavioral disorders when basically everything was turned upside down. Schools were closed, daycare centers were closed, your offices had to close for a while, but through it all, those kids and their parents still needed help probably more than ever, you know, their routines were thrown out the window, their parents had their hands full, and that was just a horrible, horrible time for everyone. Can you tell me in brief what a difference a year has made? Wow, a year, it's a whole world of difference. Um, I think both good and bad. So we're obviously still going through the pandemic at some level, but some of the things that we learned about the parents is that they really learn to be resilient. Um, At the beginning, they were scared. They didn't know what to expect. They did not want, um, most of the vast majority did not want anybody in their home. And, you know, just like most of us, we were afraid, but I'm really proud of the parents we serve. As you know, most of them are monolingual Spanish speaking, or a vast majority of our clients are monolingual Spanish speaking. And I would say that educational level might be on the lower side overall. And um, just being familiar with technology, also that was on the lower side when compared um, to some of their counterparts. But the parents have learned to use Zoom, to use different pieces of technology. Um, We noticed that they would call upon, you know, older um, children, maybe not, obviously not the client that we're serving, though in some cases, if they are higher functioning, they also help their parents. So resiliency is something that we have seen um, this year and how much more comfortable and confident they are with everything and just dealing with services and just life in general. Yes, we all had to learn. We're all Zoom experts now, you know. <laughs> We're all saying, okay, I actually have to get up even though I'm working from home. I actually have to get up and take a shower because I'm going to be on four Zoom meetings today, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's been it's great technology, though. I honestly don't know how we lived without it before. It's, it's one of those things. Before we had the fax machine, we didn't know how much we needed that until we had it. And then we had email, and we, had, we were able to upload documents and doing all this stuff we can do now. The technology is great. So I'm really glad that it was able to help you, you know, and the clients that you serve, because it's such a, uh, a different population, obviously. Uh, let's talk about this a little bit. I want to talk first about your staff and how they help these kids overall. Can you explain to our listeners what your direct staff does, you know, their training, their oversight, and how they help these kids? Yes. As you mentioned, we have two sister agencies. One of them is Familias First, um, which offers applied behavioral analysis services, And we focus um, um, in in the home and in the community. Those are the two primary settings. As well as recently, we became um, the first agency in California to be given a grant by the Department of Developmental Services to provide parent training to monolingual Spanish-speaking families. So we are also doing this. We're doing it through Zoom. Again, there's that technology piece. And um, we've been very effective and successful in doing that. And then our sister agency, CBC Education, focuses on um, teaching our clients social skills and play skills in the home community and in our center. We have two centers, one in El Monte and one in the city of San Gabriel. Okay, so, you know, what's it been like since the schools have reopened? Has this helped the kids with these types of disorders? 
Yeah, well, most of our services are, again, are not center-based, but it has helped tremendously in that the work that we do in the home really is about giving our clients and the parents skills and tools that they can use in any setting. The skills that we teach our clients are really applicable in any setting. So we have definitely heard from parents and, and, and our clients themselves saying that they felt more comfortable when they did start to go to school. Obviously, not all of them have opted to, to be um you know, in vivo in, in the school setting, but it has helped with some of the anxiety that they were expressing, feeling kind of nervous, not knowing how to act after a couple of years. So it, it definitely has helped in the school setting as well. So did you see a setback in the progress of the kids with autism during 2020, 2021? Tell us about the issues that were most prevalent in their progress or lack of progress during this time and what can be done to get them back on track you know because of course they had setbacks they had to yes the setbacks were mostly in the social skills domain um i mentioned just briefly that uh, our clients and our parents expressed anxiety um you know from just whether their family member or their child would be safe. Will they keep the mask on? And that's something that we worked at home. Some of our clients, when we started, were not even willing to touch or put a mask on because of sensory issues. Um, and we worked on having them keep it for sometimes a few seconds and then a few minutes. And, you know, so that was one, the safety was an issue, but also, what I heard, and actually even from my kids, I have two 16-year-olds who are neurotypical, and they mentioned that they were comfortable now talking through Zoom to friends, you know, school, and the first day that they went back this year, because they are in person now, they thought, it's going to be a little weird, mom, and these are 16-year-old, you know, again, neurotypical um, kids, so I, I know that our clients face similar situations. What we see with our clients is that they have difficulty in expressing themselves. So we're more likely to see problem behaviors and frustration come out in different ways. Um, but again, we, we focus on giving them skills and strategies that they can use. And this has helped drastically. I know that when I spoke to my staff, a particular client came up, a 12-year-old client that was actually not vocal, not verbalizing pre-pandemic. And during the pandemic, his vocal repertoire increased. So there were also a lot of successes. And that was really, that was probably a beacon of hope for both the family and our staff to see this during this crazy time. So wow. a lot of good came out of it too. Wow. That, that, that just, that just kind of gave me kind of shivers when you talked about that. That's, I think that's an amazing, amazing thing. And that's just, you know, speaks to what a valuable service it is that people like yourselves that work in this type of environment and this type of industry, you know, that you provide for these kids. I think it's just amazing. And that's why I wanted to have you back because again, it was so heartwarming last year when you were talking about this and what was going on. Uh, I wanted to kind of bring this around uh, to, you know, where we are today and just see, because, you know, I, I, I just, it, it made me want to follow up and see, you know, what's going on with kids. Because what I did in a podcast that I recorded last week was I talked to uh, some people about some nurses and so forth uh, about adults and how they were dealing with COVID and how it's still going on. And, you know, the, during mental health awareness, I wanted to kind of bring that to the forefront. And I talked a lot about uh, that and asked them questions about how adults were behaving and, you know, what was, you know, how they they talked about the statistics with the anxiety and the depression and the potential for suicide uh, and things like that during uh, times like COVID and so forth being, you know, at a higher level. So when I was recording that podcast, that's when I says, you know, I've got to, I've got to follow up and talk to Ruth again, because it's, it's so important that people understand during these very stressful times, you know, how important it is to help these, these people. Um, so let's talk about safer at home rules from last year where, you know, the kids had little to no social interaction except for those wonderful Zoom meetings, right? How has that changed? Uh, are the kids happier overall now that they can be in school with their friends, their teachers, you know, see their therapists and, and their behavioral specialists? 
I would say that the majority of our clients are very happy and um, there's a sense of normalcy. We know that individuals with autism um, tend to thrive on routines. So the fact that they're now, you know, getting up at a certain time, um, either being picked up by the bus or the parents driving them, and, you know, all of the things that are routines around a school setting has definitely brought comfort, happiness, and, and safety, a sense of safety. Um, but there's also the anxiety of going back and also disrupting the routine that they've had at home, even if it was a lack of routine, but that was their daily life. And now that has been changed when they started to go to school. So um, I think that's why services such as ours are so important because they really help the client um, really adapt and, you know, problem solve and come up with different ways that they can self-manage their behavior, whether it be, you know, from the break of routine from the home now to school or vice versa when the pandemic started. I want to come back to that for just a moment. Let's talk about the overall stress of something like a pandemic on these kids and their parents. And you just mentioned it, and I've mentioned it, and again, we talked about it last year as well. But can you walk us through the most common scenarios related to stress in the ABA world? I would say um, that in, in terms of the clients that we serve, um, a lot of the stress had to do with being able to survive, you know, just economically. Um, again, we are the agency that from day one, part of our mission is to serve underrepresented communities. We saw parents who were part of the customer service industry that lost jobs that were, you know, about to lose their either apartment, their mortgage. Um, my husband actually works as a, a principal also in the inner city. And he mentioned that a lot of his students, uh, the family, well, I shouldn't say a lot, a good number of them became homeless um, during the pandemic. So definitely in, in terms of ABA services, it, you know, it's, it's the break in routine. It's the starting again, because they've regressed behaviorally. At the beginning, nobody received services. Absolutely no one. And even with one of our contracts with the regional centers, where we didn't have to really provide services at the beginning, uh, we were one of the first agencies that started to provide Zoom services because we knew the detrimental effects that it would have on, on the family. So there's a lot of stress emotionally, economically, but again, I would say that the families we serve disproportionately were affected economically. That's, that's really sad to hear, but it is a truth that's out there, and it's, it's, it is the reality of the situation. And again, it really brings it, us back to, you know, the importance of all of these things and talking about it. So let's talk about, you know, because things have changed now, of course, we talked last year when we talked about this, we were talking about the hope for vaccines, and now we have them. Well, let's talk about the vaccines and the L.A. County mandate for just a moment. How do these mandates affect you and your staff and the kids and their parents? Does this affect group therapy? Are you able to even do group therapy now? So the mandates affect the Latino community disproportionately in an unfavorable way. What I mean by that is that, number one, a lot of the families that we serve do not have health insurance. They may not be eligible for health insurance. Mandates are coming from LA County or state or federal unless the families are hearing this from a church, from, you know, maybe a booth in a local grocery store, there is a level of either distrust or just feeling like they don't quite comprehend and therefore they will not access. But for the families that did elect or were able to get vaccines, I think it definitely gave them some peace of mind, but their children were not eligible until relatively recently. And for those clients that were older within the age group that could have been vaccinated on the first or second tier, there's whole different set of issues. For example, bringing a client to get vaccinated could be pretty severe and intense where it requires several people. It's the sensory, it's the first time being in the car, it's the being in a medical type setting or seeing, you know, the, the needle of the injection and how do we deal with this 
especially if the person's an adult, you know, there's a need to respect their dignity as an individual. So holding them down to give them a vaccine is not the way. So it was very complex, but we are finding that families are have access vaccines more than not. I can't say that I have an exact percentage, but definitely I don't have a percentage for the 12 and under because that's recent. But if I had to give you my most educated guess, really, of the percentage of families that have received vaccines, I'm going to say about 70% now, 60 to 70%, um, but it's still a challenge. Yeah, um, I'm sure it is. And I don't think that to people that don't have, you know, a direct uh, link to this type of environment that aren't as familiar with autism, uh, that maybe, you know, haven't been around kids with autism, they may not understand those types of difficulties. And that's why I wanted to bring that to their attention, to everyone's attention, because you're dealing with a different population of kids here. And I think it's really important that people understand that these kids, you know, they need help with these sorts of things. And what is the average age approximately of your clients? We have four different programs, um, but I would say that I'll give you a small range just because of the different programs. It would be between 11 and 14, so somewhere around. Right. So the majority of them were able to get vaccinated then with the 12 and over vaccination uh, requirements uh, and availability then. So they were, the majority were eligible, but getting them vaccinated was the challenge. Right, right. So has the county vaccine mandate, you know, made parents feel more comfortable letting their kids come in for group therapy? I think what has made um, the parents more comfortable is the seriousness in which we really responded to the pandemic. Um, and because again, in our the community that we serve, there's somewhat of a disconnect between um, the local or federal authorities and um, our families receiving the information, maybe having trust in what's being said. But the most important link were really our therapists and our staff. From day one, we were wearing shields and aprons and 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 gloves, and it was maybe a little excessive, but parents actually said, you know what, I appreciate you because I know that you're taking this seriously. And even when we were giving telehealth sessions, which was by far maybe 95% or greater, you know, the sessions, the type of sessions that we were giving, our staff was so amazing that they were willing to put on the mask, to put on the apron, to put on the gloves so that they can really help um, the client familiarize, feel comfortable, sensitize them, um, wear shields, you know, because these were things that they were going to see. And also teaching the client during sessions how to put on a mask. You know, so I, I would say um, that as we've become more relaxed because of the guidance, you know, of the different, um, you know, authorities, our, our clients still report feeling comfortable. Um, our staff is still wearing double masks, even though they don't have to. And they're really doing things that I think the, the parents have really told us they appreciate it um, because this is their child that they're trusting to us during that time of session. Yeah, and I think you guys have done a phenomenal job, and I told you that all throughout this entire pandemic, and I remember you and I had several conversations in the early part of the pandemic about what you could and couldn't do and, and how, you know, all these rules applied and so forth as related to HIPAA and so forth, and obviously, mm -hmm. because I know a little bit about that, um, <laughs> I, was I was happy to help you out there, but I, I remember all those conversations and all the decisions that you had to make, and I was actually quite happy with the fact that you decided to kind of go above and beyond the requirements and I know if I were if I were a patient of any type uh, going into a doctor's office or doing anything I I know I also appreciated when they kind of went above and beyond which you guys did so thank you very much for that so how are the parents doing now overall it's been over 18 months now since the COVID lockdowns are they feeling some relief now tell us a little bit about that Sure. Um, I would say that the parents are feeling more comfortable. I think most of us, to some degree, are feeling more comfortable um, just because it's a way of life now. The fact that we see people with masks has become more part of our everyday experience. Um, I, I also 
am very happy to to say that clients have responded well. Most of them are wearing masks at least for some period of time where before we had all sorts of problem behaviors that were exhibited just to even try to get a mask on them or to introduce the idea. And we, we would never impose that. So just even introducing the idea and touching the mask. So I, I definitely feel that parents are, are um, much more relaxed about it. When their child, particularly if we're talking, you know, of someone under 17 chooses not to wear a mask which does happen occasionally if they're having a day where there's um, sensory issues are heightened I what I hear is that parents really struggle with other people's judgment because they may they may hear comments like they're not being a good parent they're not being a safe parent most of our clients and individuals who have autism do not have physical characteristics such as Down syndrome and other cerebral palsy possibly. So they get comments such as, oh, handle or take care of your bratty kid, right? So that is a struggle, but I, I would say those episodes are less, they're fewer and far, be, you know, far between. So I would say overall, um, there's a little bit of a they've at least taken one deep breath <laughs> and, and they're moving forward with everything as best as they can. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, as I mentioned before, I recorded a podcast last week uh, about how COVID has amplified the negative impacts on mental and behavioral health. We talk mostly, as I said before, about adults and including younger adults. But while preparing that podcast, I read that approximately one in five adults or 20% of the adult population suffers from some sort of mental health issue. And the experts that I talked to felt it was actually much higher than that because those statistics generally come from reports of people making you know, therapy appointments or having prescriptions filled, et cetera. What do you think that percentage might be? And I'm only asking you just off the top of your head because I know this is not your, it's not your field uh, to, and certainly you're not supposed to be researching this sort of thing. But what do you think the percentage might be for kids? Well, I, I can tell you for kids um, with, uh, um, with autism and other intellectual disabilities, I would say it's at least 90%. And why do I say this? Because anxiety, um, depression, um, ADHD, which actually falls under the mental health and not an intellectual disability, um, there's a high comorbidity. And, and, and there's, it's well documented. I don't have an exact stat or anything like that, but it is very much well documented. So it's very high. And, and that's why we have seen the negative impact on a lot of our clients during, you know, during the pandemic. That, that is amazing. You think approximately 90% might, yeah, that's that's pretty serious. Uh, and people need to be, I think, a little bit more understanding and aware of this because as I talked about, in, and again, in my last podcast, uh, you know, people don't always, people don't always ask for help, you know, but you have to kind of be attuned to that and kind of pick up on some of the things that may not be normal for that person when they're going through these, you know, episodes or these times when it's stressful and so forth and, and be a little bit more responsive, I guess, uh, in society. That's why, again, I wanted to have a couple podcasts on these topics during Mental Health Awareness Month because I just think it's, it's so important. So anxiety and depression increased during the pandemic. You and I have just talked about that. Young adults were affected uh, with anxiety, depression, sleep disorders, thoughts of suicide, and so forth. How does this translate to kids, particularly those with autism and their parents? Have you witnessed uh, this at all? And is it getting any better now? Um, you know, even now with people being vaccinated, kids being back to school, starting to go back to see their doctors, and in your case, their therapists, what are you seeing right now? What we see is a higher incidence of behavioral issues. That's what we see. The way our clients by far express um, not being able to adjust to the new normalcy and facing anxiety, depression, all these different mental health issues is by acting out. So I, one of the things that we train our staff and we teach the parents of our clients is to see that tantrum, that aggressive behavior, that non-compliance as a, a way that the client, their child, their family member, in case they're, you know, adults are expressing 
the anxiety, the depression. So um, I think it's easy sometimes to think, oh, you know, he's just acting up. He doesn't want to do something. He's going back to old habits or possibly regressing in a volitional way. But really, it's a way to express these mental health issues that they may be um, they may be facing. So it is something that um, it's important to train not only our staff, but really, again, the parents and the community at large. Yeah. And as you said, people are so used to just saying things like just get your kid under control, you know, if they're in a restaurant or if they're in a grocery store or, you know, at Target or whatever. And, and uh, I think it's it's important that people understand that, you know, sometimes these things just, you know, aren't as simple as what you might think they might be. So I'm glad that you're talking about this. What are some helpful tips that you might be able to give parents dealing with the stress of COVID? So one of the first um, sessions that we had um, through telehealth when the pandemic started was focused on our parents. And, and, and we actually took at least a couple of sessions in which we told our parents, take time for yourself. This is unprecedented. There's no, um, nothing has ever happened remotely the same um, or even similar, really. And the, so the first tip would be for the parents to give themselves some grace, to give themselves some mercy, and really take some time out and know that things are going to be different. There's going to be setbacks. Nothing and no one is perfect. So that's one thing that's really important is that for them to take that time and also to really recognize that small successes during the pandemic are huge successes. Um, so even if it's an hour where, you know, whether the client has learned to keep the mask on for an hour or sit quietly and watch a TV program where maybe before there would have been a lot more problem behaviors being exhibited because it's not the usual thing that would happen during the day. They would be in school or in some type of academic setting. So I think those were some of the basic things. Take time for yourself as the parent because if you're good, it sets the tone. If the parent is anxious, which I could totally understand, or is feeling down, our kids feed off that. So it's really going to exacerbate um, what they're feeling. Um, and then again, you know, focusing on, on small steps, small, steady steps. Um, try to really maintain, even if it's one area that was worked on before the pandemic where your child was really showing some success, maybe focus on that one area and trying to maintain that, not only for the sake of your child retaining the skill, but really for the parent's sake of, of, of seeing, you know, there is some light. You know, Joey or, or Sally is still doing that one thing. Um, so those are some of the things that I think the parents mentioned to us that it was really invaluable um, to see the positives. And some parents actually came back after the initial shock of, you know, being part of a pandemic worldwide and said, you know, I'm glad that you guys said that because I noticed that this past two weeks, we sat down on the table together, or we watched a program together, or even going around the block for a walk with our masks on, which I would have thought, oh, you know, that's boring. We have nothing going on this weekend as a family. That was huge. So I think, you know, there's a lot to be said about the mindset of gratitude and um, focusing on what is within our control in small chunks. It's huge. Yeah, for sure. So what should a parent do if they feel that their kids might have some symptoms that could be on the autism spectrum? What are the first steps? So it depends on the age, um, Dorothy. If they are um, three years or younger, or really, hope, hopefully at this point, that's the age group that we're, we're catching this. But it, I, I'm definitely still hearing of five, eight, ten-year-olds um, that are being diagnosed. And quite frankly, it does have to do with the community and the ethnic group that you belong to. Unfortunately, disproportionately, those are some factors that are still at play. But either way, one of the first things that they should do is that they could reach out to the regional center because the regional centers um, would do an intake that includes seeing if the child is showing these different, um, you know, symptoms that are associated with ASD. And, you know, they, they would determine in the long run if they're eligible. But also your pediatrician is huge. There's many pediatricians 
that will first provide a diagnosis and therefore that um, gives the family member eligibility to approach the regional center, to approach the school district. So that's another way um, really having really good open communication with the pediatrician and really trusting yourself. Um, I know a lot of families and even some in my family that knew there was something quote unquote wrong or atypical about their child's behavior, but maybe the pediatrician said, you know, no, they're fine. You know, they're going to grow out of it. And what we're finding is even 15, 20 years ago, the amount of training that a pediatrician had in autism specifically was very little. It was maybe a day. And I know this because I have, you know, I have doctors in, in my family or people that I know on a, you know, personal basis. So the parents in many ways knew more because they were seeing this and maybe they had neurotypical children, but they didn't trust themselves and they didn't trust themselves because they didn't speak the language. So we're really teaching our parents document, write it down, write how it's impacting your family member on a daily basis. How is it impacting for him or her to be a child, an adolescent or an adult in compared to, you know, neurotypical individuals so um, and then approaching with this type of information um, either the pediatrician again the regional center usually the school district is is um, one of the second or third parties that become involved but sometimes the school district will catch it too and do their own um, testing but I think our parents need to understand they're not giving your child a diagnosis they're just determining whether your family member is eligible for their services so you do still need to look for a medical um, professional or psychiatrist psychologist which also really does fall under that medical professional profession to give a diagnosis because um, it, that opens doors. It's scary. It can be sad. I think um, that, you know, many parents share. Of course, they would rather not have their child have a diagnosis. But if they do have one, if they do have these challenges, then it's about embracing it because it opens doors for services, for supports, for really helping your family member get to the next level. And I would also encourage our, our, our parents that are listening um, to seek out support groups. Um, again, whether it be regional center, school district, there's many companies such as Familias First, um, our company that offers trainings and workshops that really empower parents and, and give them knowledge and teach them to, to advocate in an effective way um, for their family member. Yeah, you mentioned regional centers a couple of times, and for those that may not be used to this because they've never had to deal with this before, can you just explain to us briefly, you know, what a regional center is, where, you know, where they're located, uh, and, you know, what exactly they do, what, what part do they play in all of this? Absolutely. So regional centers are nonprofit organizations that receive funding from the Department of Developmental Services or DDS as they're typically referred to. DDS is a state agency. Um, so they fund um, the different regional centers. If I'm not mistaken, I believe there's eight in total, but Southern California has five of them. Um, and which regional center um, you belong to or will provide services is dependent on the city that you live in. So each regional center has a catchment area and it would really be about Googling or somehow finding out which one serves your area. And once you get that number and you call, you can let them know I'm a parent, I'm just learning about possibly getting a diagnosis or eligibility. So they will probably refer them to intake. And what I tell my parents and when I talk to them, my parents, meaning, you know, the parents of the clients, um, if you're in doubt, just err on the side of caution. It's better for someone, particularly a medical doctor after they've run a you know, battery of tests to say, you know, your child is not eligible, right? then for for the for your family member to have been eligible and potentially losing some precious time in 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 supporting them you know to, to their fullest potential um and sometimes we find that they may not be um fall 
under the, the full diagnosis, let's say autism spectrum disorders, but maybe there's enough characteristics where they may still have some support available to them. Yeah, for sure. What do you know, what do you do about the parents that might be in denial about their kids possibly being on the autism uh, spectrum? That's that is huge and um you know i would say really the same thing um that i said right now which is if you have a doubt just seek resources um the fact is that our you know autism is a lifelong um diagnosis without support not the individual but the behaviors tend to get worse in the sense that maybe there's skills that have not been learned, ways to manage um, certain situations or, or to behave in certain ways. So individuals that are not supported and, and the longer that they're not supported or are receiving services, the behaviors and, and, and their lack of appropriate behaviors will be impacted negatively. So I really urge parents to really um, you know, see, and I understand, I understand there's going to be grieving, there's going to be um, a sense of loss. Um, but I what we have found um, by far, you know, just speaking to the parents that we serve, that once they're able to embrace that, they actually see the beauty and the gift that you can definitely, um, you know, appreciate once you know this is my special child that is really exceptional in so many ways in so many positive ways and in so many ways that really our parents say they've taught me to be a better human so there's that side of it right so i would really urge if you are in doubt if you have a suspicion trust your gut instinct particularly in the latino community there's a big lag between when a parent suspected something might be different and when they seek services they really um lag behind you know the 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 white and um, even our, our our black clients they tend to lag behind there tends to be a little bit more of a self-doubt possibly because of the language um we we also hear that our clients are told by usually the grandmas he's going to be okay his uncle you know started to speak at five years old right and then you Five years old, by the way, is, 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 you know, there's definitely a delay there. But not only that, you look back and you see that the uncle has been divorced five times and has difficult forming friendships, right? So I think it's very important to trust yourself. And, and really, um, being the best parent is trying to find out, you know, what may be wrong or where do they need to be supported? Because there's nothing wrong with the individual. They're, they're, they're right, they're whole, they're, you know, worthy of dignity and all of those good things. How do we support the areas that are problematic or challenging? That's really the goal here. Right, absolutely. So let's talk about the schools for just a moment. Uh, once the schools went back to in-person learning, did most of your clients, did those kids go back to in-person classes or did the majority of them stay home for homeschooling? I, we, we're finding that it's about 50-50, 50% roughly of them, maybe a little higher, embraced um, going back to school. But there's a lot of parents that are still afraid and they're still receiving telehealth services. Actually, one of our programs that is mostly center-based, we have two center-based programs through CBC Education, but one of them reported that disproportionately the parents wanted telehealth. And part of it is, I'm sure, you know, their fears, their discomfort, but we're finding that they've actually enjoy the fact that they can see what their family members learning. So we're trying to balance it out where of course we're celebrating that, but if the parent is otherwise comfortable and feels their family member is ready, we also want to encourage that if that's where they are and that's what's important to them. So sometimes, you know, too much of something too good can backfire in, in that sense, but it's a good backfire, but we're ready to support them wherever they are in that continuum. Thank you. <laughs> and I'm going to ask you a question that might be a little controversial, and you don't have to answer it if you don't want to, but I would like to ask it. Uh, did you decide to mandate that your employees be vaccinated? Why or why not? So we were instructed by legal counsel that um, to mandate our staff would be a slippery slope 
Um, so we have progressively adjusted and pivoted with the different mandates from the local authorities and federal government. But what we, what I feel as, as the owner, both Familias First and CBC, what supersedes federal or state mandates is my moral conscience. So if somebody does not want to vaccinate and we don't have the power obviously to force them, not, not that I'm saying we would do it if it was within our capacity, but we definitely don't have the capacity to force them, but they will definitely be providing telehealth services. Um, I treat each and every client as if this were my child. Would I want somebody, whether the parent knows to ask, some of our parents don't know to ask, um, can you tell me if the staff that you're sending is vaccinated? They might assume, and yet I know of medical professionals that we've seen in, in, in you know, the news that are not vaccinated themselves. So they might assume because this is authority, these are professionals are gonna do the right thing. They know better than I do. They know better you know, in so many areas that they attribute knowledge that we may not necessarily have you know, outside of our, our, of our field. So I really, um, what would I want if this were my child? So definitely staff that are not vaccinated, which is actually now a small minority, thank goodness. They will provide telehealth services. Um, and, you know, we definitely will send out reminders and encourage, we pay them for going to get the vaccine. You know, we don't like deduct time from their day or if they're hourly. So we have really gone out of our way to support, but we realize there's a lot of legality in mandating, but I can say that we strongly encourage and, and we look for all sorts of ways to reinforce that behavior and to allow the time and space for that to be done. Yeah, and that's really great that you adjusted so well to the telehealth environment so that you have the ability to actually, you know, reassign those cases to those clients and parents that, you know, want telehealth. So I think that's that's a really, you know, good way to do that. And I congratulate you for that thought process and for everything that went into that. It is a really controversial subject out there. But uh, again, well, I, I had think, to ask. I had to ask. Yeah, of course. You know, but I, I was going to just because you're, in, in my eyes and in many people's eyes, an expert in the whole HIPAA field and you're so knowledgeable, just one thing I wanted to share is that the other side is also sticky where a parent may ask, is the individual that you're sending to my house vaccinated, right? So um, what I can say is that um, practitioners, ABA um, or otherwise, that are still in this field and doing it with integrity is definitely because they care and they love the community that we serve and the family because it's sticky all around, right? We cannot tell somebody, oh, this person is not. But your other therapist, because we do try to assign whenever possible, and depending on the number of hours, at least two therapists, so that our, our, our clients generalized are able to really um, show the behaviors that we're showing them across different people and settings. So there's going to be likely two people going into their home, including the supervisor. So it really gets sticky. And we cannot say that we cannot disclose that. But we really try to do things, um, you know, with dignity and um, really keeping the family and the clients, um, you know, need to be safe also in mind. Yes, and I think you, I think very well said. Uh, and because of the HIPAA applications there, I do want to uh, you know, mention that again because you mentioned you brought it up as well. Uh, you know, you need to make sure when you're making these kind of decisions for if you do own your own company or you have your own employees and things like that, you know, you really do need to seek the advice of legal counsel before you make any rash decisions uh, and uh, understand that there are kind of two sides to every coin and uh, you need to understand what your what your legal responsibilities are versus your moral ones, as you talked about, Ruth, and uh, don't assume that you can just randomly ask people, uh, especially if they're your employees because we do have HIPAA rights. So again, thanks for bringing that up. I think that's a fairly, really important point. Well, how does the uh, president's vaccine mandate for employers with over 100 employees and essential workers affect your industry? I think that, you know, each company is not yet at 100, you know, employees. Um, and I am not going to lie. I'm kind of thankful for that right now as it gives me a little bit of um 
time to again seek counsel and to formulate policies and and different practices um but i think one thing i i've learned dorothy is that when you really try to do the right thing it tends to pay off so even if tomorrow we hit a hundred employees right and all of a sudden they're you know these now it's mandated that you know they're vaccinated or that you know we have always moved along that continuum so there would not be a lot of um, impact on our field and just not so related but just to give you another example many years ago because we value our staff if they were working 25 hours or more we were paying them pto pay time off so when it became a mandate um, to provide three days I know there's a lot of agencies that were like really you know besides themselves because and for us it was like oh, okay thank goodness we did this because we felt it was the right thing so what I could say to employers um, is that if you really try and I know it's not easy with all these legal things that you need to think but if you really lead um, you know from the heart and 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 with values with morals you're going to be okay there's going to be some shifting some pivoting for sure but in the long run you will find that there's not a lot of disruption to your business yeah you did that as well not only for pto but also for your employees uh with health benefits very few employers went uh, you know went above and beyond you know the law requires if you have so many employees and this and that with the aca and with everything else for a long time you guys actually started you know offering coverage to your employees well under the 30 as at the 25 hour mark yes. and things like that so you guys obviously have always uh, have always done the right thing there and always gone above and beyond of course um, and a lot of people in your industry haven't done that I can say that for a fact because I <laughs> as you know I've worked with worked with a lot of them uh, well let's talk more about the safety protocols uh, have your industry's safety protocols changed at all since the schools reopened they have changed and we really have mirrored whatever the um, LA County, the state or federal are mandating. But a, again, we find that we supersede them, such as if, even if our staff is vaccinated, they're still double masking at this point when they're serving our clients. Again, this is just the right thing to do, not only by the client and the family, but also being sensitive for those individuals who, for whatever reason, and I really, I would say, since it's such a small percentage in our company, valid reason, um, they have decided, most likely valid reason, they have not decided to vaccinate at this point. So we're also making sure that we're not singling them out. So therefore, everybody is wearing double masks. Everybody, we're not wearing shields. That has gone away as we've also loosened up some, um, you know, with the new stats that, that are available. But, you know, we're really trying to supersede and I think that once we see things continue hopefully to trend in the way they are and, and get better then we'll make decisions um, at that point and we have unfortunately not met in person which is something that we would all we would have different activities you know with the company we miss that we've done all sorts of telehealth activities such as um, anything um, from what was it? Um, we did like a comedy night. We did Halloween, you know, as a company. It was interesting. And some of the kicks were just at trying to execute it, quite frankly. But um, yeah, I think that so far, I believe we're going to be fine. And I know we will continue to adjust as we need to. Yeah, for sure. We've all had to make adjustments. That's for sure. Well, as we've talked about several times, it's Mental Health Awareness Month this month. During this important month, what do you think is the most important or impactful message that you would like to share with listeners regarding adults and children and mental and behavioral health? What I would want everyone to know is that we all face mental health issues, whether it be temporary, situational, or long-term, such as part of a diagnosis, we all face it, have faced it, and will likely face it in the future. And that it, hopefully we're working towards it not being taboo. It doesn't mean that you are crazy, that you are psycho. And I use these words um, lightly and respectfully, but these are some of the things that are said and still some people think. And uh, there's hopefully, and it seems to me, a smaller percentage of people 
that they hear someone's going to a psychiatrist, there's there, there can still be a taboo, but I'm finding that it's less and less before if someone, oh, he's going to a psychiatrist. Oh, and I think that we're really moving away from that. I think that's the message. Seek out the mental health support that you need, just as I've encouraged the families to seek out a diagnosis or services. If you have a family member that has an intellectual disability, there's no shame. There's nothing negative about it. It's just the right thing to do. It's the empowering thing to do. And it's really what's going to pay off in the long run. Um, staying just quiet and retreating because we're might be afraid what others might say is not going to work out. Just like we said, it would not work out if we're not seeking services for our family member, it will progressively get worse. Yes, absolutely. Well, thanks Ruth for all of this very valuable information. What you do in the ABA industry really, really matters. If someone out there has any questions, how can they reach you? They can definitely call our office and they um, will be directed depending what their question is. Um, that number is 626-320-1317. They can definitely look us up in social media and they can look us up through Familias, F-A-M-I-L-I-A, S as in Sam, first spelled out F-I-R-S as in Sam T, or C-B-C, so Charles Betty Charles Education Inc. And we will be more than happy to refer you or assist you in whatever way we can. Thank you very much. And for everybody else out there, please remember help is available. If you or someone you know is struggling or someone doesn't seem quite right, remember they may not be. Now, especially during Mental Health Awareness Month or at any time, please talk to someone about getting some help. Thanks again, Ruth, for being my guest again this week and uh, sharing your thoughts and insights with us. I really, really, really do appreciate it. Thank you. It was an honor to be part of this, Dorothy. And especially during this very important month, I, I really appreciate you. Thanks to everyone out there. Please stay safe, stay healthy, and be aware. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3 toll-free at 866-658-3835, or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.